This week on Hacker and the Fed, a Danish cloud provider loses all of their customers' data. A hacker in custody continues hacking through a fire stick. There are two great write-ups about a zero-day vulnerability and HTML smuggling. Cybersecurity entry jobs should be just that, entry into the industry. And we answer listener questions that include an ongoing dialogue with an active hacker about becoming a white hat. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how are things going? Oh, man, I'm doing great, brother. I love the energy. You energized tonight. Are you blowing up there? Are you getting messages left and right? Yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm getting messages from my old crew from back in the days. Oh, nice. Uh, old hackers? Yeah, yeah, my boys from you know a whole different scene way before Anonymous and all that. They just blowing up my phone right now because we got, we got to reconnect after, after many years. Nice, nice. How'd you guys come together? Well, the original story or now, recent? Yeah, no, the original story. We don't need to know about it now. Yeah. Now it's probably some stupid like LinkedIn or something. You're all Exactly. It was exactly LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, no. Back in the days, I was a bored teenager, and I would go to netsplit.de for all you old-timers that are, are big on IRC. And I used to just click on random networks and check things out and see what the network's about and see what kind of people were there. And so I found this one network. And uh, not, I'm not going to mention the name because it still ties to, you know, we're the owners. And um, I just logged on the network and the owner hit me up. He was like, yeah, uh, what's up? What are you like? What's the deal? And I was like, oh, I'm just passing through, man. He's like, are you a customer? I'm like, no. But I'm just like I said, I'm passing through. And he's like, all right, cool. Yeah, we'll hang out with us. Fine. Whatever. It is what it is. You know, the funny thing about those guys, that little circle, is that they were hilarious. Like, you had one guy who was, like, monotone, like a robot. And if, I told him that today. I'm like, dude, back in the day, you sound like a robot. Today, you're like a, you're like a cheerleader. Um, and then the other guy was, like, sarcastic. So sarcastic that um, if you didn't, like, if you're not into that kind of humor, you would, you would think he's, he's just being a dick to you. And so, yeah, I just started hanging out with them. And then over time, I said, hey, guys, by the way, I might be doing some illegal activities. Just don't mind me. Um, oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and right before I got really deep into like the the whole nonsense I got into, um, I left them alone. You know, they thought I, I just didn't want to hang out with them no more. But the reality is, it's like I didn't want them to get in trouble or be associated. So yeah, that's how we met, and we've we've been friends for like twenty years. So they were they doing illegal activity? Uh, no, one guy was in the army, and the other guy, uh, you know, he was up and coming. I'm sure he did some wild stuff in the background, but it was never nothing like what I did. You know. I got you. Yeah, I got you. Oh man, I love connecting with old friends like that. You know, I have a I have a few different friend groups like that throughout my lifetime. And when you reconnect, and it's like 
uh, not a day has passed since the last time you guys were all sitting around shooting the shit. Um, that, that's the best. Oh man, it, it is the best. They, you know, it's the nostalgia, right? It's the catching up phase, and then it's like, wow, man, I, I wouldn't give up that for for anything. If I could go back and, and yeah, we were idling a lot on IRC for sure, but uh, we did have some hilarious moments. So. I got an FBI crew that we all meet out in Las Vegas every fall for like a football weekend. It's coming up soon, so I'm excited about it. And we, we talk throughout the year, text and all that. But, man, once we get together, it's like we haven't even been separated. So it's uh, everyone looks forward to meeting. We come from all over the world to, to get together to for it. So it's nice. Wow, bro. That's really cool. Like, I'm, I'm glad that you have that. That's like that's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's strange. It's like I've got a few different friend groups like that where they just come back together and it's no problem. Um, I think it would my mind would blow be blown if uh, like those friends groups interacted though and came mm. together. Oh. That'd be strange for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it kind of reminds me of, and this this might really hit home for a lot of you out there, especially that that you know some of you that were hardcore gamers, right? If you log into your old gaming profile and then like you see all your old friends from like twelve years ago, eight years ago. You might see one person online, the rest of them are offline. It's like a certain nostalgia and a certain sadness to it. Like, damn, where are these people at? Um, I had so many great memories with these folks, and, and they're not around anymore. So sometimes I feel that. Sometimes I feel like, wow, where are all my people at? You know, I had a big crew. Back in the, the pure elite days, you know, we had like, I don't know, 40s to 60, like, you know, casuals. Um, and they would kind of hang out. We would just kind of talk security or just troll and whatever. Um, and yeah, a lot of those guys just moved on. So it's, it's always a pleasure when I'm able to reconnect with one of them and just kind of be like, Hey, what's going on? Like, what's, what's the latest? And they're like, wow, yeah, I have kids now and I'm married and bold. Always great time. So big shout out to your friends. And hopefully you guys have a great weekend this time around this year. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. No, shout out to all friendships and any listeners out there who, you know, you haven't connected with one of your friends in a while, reach out to them. They just want to hear from you. People just want to hear from each other, especially nowadays, you know, all the bullshit with politics and all that. Just reach out to a friend. Absolutely. So, Hector, uh, I think we need to let the audience in a little on the inside of some of our uh, our conversations before the show. Oh, um, just wait, to get oh, things out there. Hold on, which conversation? <laughs> uh, I, well, well, yeah, not all of them, but one of them. Uh-huh. Um, so we were going back and forth about, you know, some of our, our episodes and how the numbers go back and forth. You know, we're coming up on a year now. So we really want to make the show last long. Um, and, you know, a year is about when people decide whether the show keeps going or not. Um, so we really need those numbers to grow and push. But, you know, your response to me on one of them was kind of like, well, I guess we'll just keep doing stories. But these stories are the same every week. They're just the same <laughs> hacks. So cybersecurity is sort of the same hacks over and over and over again. And so I want to discuss that a little bit and kind of let the audience on, inside on our, our thought process, um, how we come up with the stories that we do every week. And if, if you know, let them kind of reach out to us if, if we're not doing it. We did. There was a listener. I think his name is Ben. And we'll get to him. He sent a couple of stories in this week to us um, to, to, you know. We just don't want to talk about the same, you know, ransomware hit this and they did this because someone clicked on an email here, you know, type uh, stories. Uh, ironically, our first story is ransomware. <laughs> um, you I know, mean, it Hector, is still effective. Yeah, it is still effective. It's very good. It's very easy. But, you know, we're just looking for ideas of you guys, how how we should change the show to to make it better for you guys uh, and how we can attract more listeners. You know, we, we really want the show to take off. Uh, we get a lot of positive feedback. We, we're getting buried in email um, from listeners saying it's their favorite podcast. They love the show. Um, Hector loves it when I send them over to him and he sees that. Um, the merchandise is selling like hot fire. 
uh, as the kids would say. You know, so the show's good, but we want to make it great. We really want to get it out there. So if anybody knows a, a good way to really, you know, get the audience to grow and the numbers to grow and, you know, or, if, you know, you guys, stories aren't, you know, cut back on the stories, more stories, more user questions. You know, we try to mix everything in together. Uh, just let us know. Reach out to us. Yeah, no, absolutely. Reach out. And, and not only that, I mean, I agree with what Chris said there. I think the 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 important thing for us is to understand you know, what it is that you guys like to hear. Like we get emails every week on getting into cybersecurity and the entryway, right? Uh, the paths and potential paths and what it looks like. Um, and that's great. Absolutely. And then we get other emails that are like, hey, we want to know about Chris's perspective on, on you know, how feds approach X, Y, or Z. Um, and that's all great. Just let us know if you want more of that or you like the stories, right? I mean, we can go through the stories. I think that... I. My comment to Chris earlier was, you know, I try to pick stories that are interesting. Even if there's, even like for example, this ransomware story we're about to do, um, I I find it interesting that the the, the organization suffered the way. It, well, it's not interesting. Um, <laughs> Whoa! No, 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 no. Hot take. No, no, no that's not a hot take. Uh, someone's had to cut that out and, and use that as a meme, basically. But no, no. All, all jokes aside, the the severity and the impact of this next story is pretty deep. So I'll pull out a story like that, or Chris will pull out a story like that. And, or even it's like security research. We've done some really good research stories in the past, which I found to be interesting. So uh, if you want more of that, let us know. And we'll kind of figure out the rest. Yeah, as I said it, you know, I do owe a listener. Liza sent an email for us and and kind of behind the scenes wants to help us grow a little bit. So Liza, I, I appreciate your email and it's been a busy week, uh, but I will uh, reach back out to you with that, I, I promise. So she uh, she's a great listener, orders merchandise, and we've done emails back and forth. So oh, that's sweet. I, I owe her an email. So, But Shout on to, to the Liza. first story. On to the first story, Hector. So criminals go full Viking on Cloud uh, Nordic. Uh, wipe all servers and customer data. They got pwned. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like it. I mean, it, according to the story here, um, the company had to reach out to customers and uh, let them know, like, hey, listen, unfortunately, it seems everything was encrypted, um, including your data. So that might not be recoverable. So, yeah, Cloud Nordic is a large Danish cloud provider. They uh, got hit with ransomware. Mm, all I can think about now is a Danish, like a nice cheese Danish. But anyways, uh, they got hit with a ransomware and they... Uh, they're not willing to pay, um, but they will, the the guys, the ransomware infected uh, the companies and the customers' websites and their email systems. And even backups were trashed, um, as well as production areas. So it looks like they lost everything. Yeah, no, it's, it's an absolute shame something like this happens. And, you know, when you look at it from uh, the offender's perspective, the attacker's perspective, it seems like the attackers went pretty far. Um, they got access to backup systems. They got access to production data. They got access to email systems and customer websites. Um, you know that must have been assuming um, the assuming the environment had some sort of security measures or technical controls in place. Um, it could have been a, like a deep seated, you know, long term campaign, right? We don't really know the details. The company's not providing full details. They may not even have the details on how it happened or when it happens. Well, they do um, have they do have some sort of details. They said some of the machines were apparently infected before a move, uh, and then they moved the servers to another data center. And once they did that, they connected to their internal network, uh, which gave the intruders access both to the uh, central administrative systems, the storage, and the uh, replication backup systems, and the secondary backup systems. 
So yeah, that, yeah. that's not good. They were infected. Uh, they brought an infected machine into the heart of the company. Yeah. I mean, and that happens quite often, believe it or not. You know, there's always, you always hear things about, um, especially those in the policy world, like let's say the CIOs and then down to the director of IT and so on. They're always, you know, kind of alarming or hitting the bells on uh, rogue IT or dark IT or uh, systems that shouldn't be connected to, a, like, it sounds like this case, an internal flat network. Because once you do that, you're opening up the potential for lateral movement, assuming the device is compromised, right? And it seems like that's what happened here. And, you know, unfortunately, um, going off of what we know so far, you know, it seems like the attackers pretty much got everything. Now, as a victim, what is it that you can do? Well, you know, let's talk about mitigation because I think that's really important. Uh, being preemptive by your security measures. Well, you, you probably don't want a flat internal network. That's probably not going to be a good idea for you or any organization. I'm, I'm going to take the probably out of there. I'm going to say it's definitely not a good idea. Yeah, it's definitely not a good idea. I mean, look, you, you know, if you're an organization and you've invested in hardware for networking and routing and or you're using some sort of data center that has provided that to you, um, the reality is that if you spend some time with your network engineering team, they could walk you through the process or implement the process uh, or implement rather uh, VLANs for the purpose of segmentation. You know, we talk about segmentation all the time for our personal networks here at home. I've unfortunately dealt with a lot of clients that have flat networks still to this day, uh, regardless of their security budget. The reality is, is that if it's a legacy environment, it's probably going to cost a lot to move in that, into that direction. If we were to apply some of that, some of those technical controls into this environment, um, you know, you probably would avoid this scenario. Uh, network access controls, right? You have you have hardware devices that provide you NAC. If you have a NAC and you have a configuration that you know f prohibits, for example, um, foreign devices from connecting to the internal network without some sort of authorization, then they are not really doing much. They may be connected to the network. They might get a DHCP IP. Um, a DSCP v4 or v6 IP address. Uh, but in terms of really communicating with any of the assets on the network, that's not going to be a thing, right? Um, and so, again, if you connect a rogue device to a network where you have a NAC or segmentation in place, something like this probably would not happen, okay? But it all depends. And we, again, we don't know the intricate internal details of, of what their network looks like. Um, but, you know, it's a shame. And, you know, a, a big a big apologies to, uh, you know, to, to the victims here. I mean, they... That's that's a that's a tough loss. Yeah. So now uh, Cloud Nordic is saying that it's ready to get customers' web and email servers back uh, without data back online, albeit without DNS at, at present. Like, who who's going back? What, what clients are going back to this company? I mean, it, it's unfortunate, but you know, you know, they they said they're they're definitely not going to pay to have it unlocked, and they can't. They can't afford what they're asking. Um, so I mean, it's going to be sad, but I, I think we all see where this this company's going to go to. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen bigger organizations in the past just, just completely wipe, right? I mean, one company I worked for a long time ago, they got completely owned and um, their systems got wiped. And what did they do? They just, they turned it around and created a new startup and now they're like a billion dollar business, you know? So it seems like these, this company here is going to have to probably deal with the same consequences. Yeah, I don't know what the rules are. I don't know if they're going to face civil litigation for the data loss or, or what's going to happen with that, but... 
Whew, I mean, it's it seems silly here. The the ransomware guys didn't get paid. The company, uh, they're you know going to go probably go under as a company possibly, and the clients all lost their data. So who wins in this one? No, it's it's, it's you know it's silly. a loser fest. Yeah, yeah, it's it's silly. It is it's it's unnecessary for yeah. sure. So on to the next story, actor. Uh, GTA Six hacker found to be a teen with Amazon Fire Stick in small town hotel room. Uh, this was an interesting story. Yeah, no, I found it interesting because it goes back to the whole lapses story that we heard about several years ago. And those guys were basically buying, you know, credentials or cookies into big organizations and compromising them. They weren't necessarily hacking, but they had enough knowledge. Um, they had enough understanding of lateral movement and, and kind of moving around systems that uh, they were successful. And so what I found interesting about the story is that the the attacker here or the, or the, or the actor, um, you know, he obviously got into trouble already. Right. He was already found by, I guess, the, the British police or whatever you call them out there. And so, you know, he kind of said YOLO and, and wanted to get back into that scene. And this one thing I'm going to tell all of you here, especially of, especially those of you um, that are still in that scene or, or, or still black hat or gray hat or whatever, um, you know, if you get caught, it's, I'll tell you right now, it's easier just to move on. You don't want to get back into it, especially not in a, in a freaking hotel room with a fire stick. Uh, I speak from experience because I've been there. And Chris, if you don't mind, I can share a quick story. Yeah, I mean, just to set the stage, I mean, so th it looks like this kid was arrested uh, breaking into British tele company, telephone companies, uh, and now he was living in a travel lodge in the middle of England somewhere in a really small town. Uh, I guess it's this town. I'm not going to say the name, so I don't slander it. It's best known for its tacky outlet mall uh, and a commuter dormitory stop on the line on a line to London, a, a train line. So. So yeah, so and then he plugs in his fire stick that he bought at the the store next door, um, and starts leaking data. So uh, so he's in trouble already, held up in a hotel, probably by the cops, or that's just where you know maybe um, buys this stick and then it connects back and does bad things. So sorry, there's the set set the stage. What's your story, Hector? Yeah, no, I mean I had the same scenario. I mean even going back with you know with Chris like. You know, when when I was arrested, I had a PlayStation, uh, PlayStation Three, I believe, and I would use it for gaming. Oh man, I was going hard on Skyrim. I'll tell you that much. And uh, yeah, the the situation was that I was I would also use the PlayStation to connect to, to services, um, and you know, get access to things I needed to access. And so there was a point where you know I got arrested or whatever, and the PlayStation was left with us, the family. And I would sit there and look at the PlayStation like, damn, I could get online real quick and you know, get access to something and do something. But I had to deal with the reality check that now it's, you know, it's different for this this person here because he's obviously a teenager. He probably doesn't have a lot of responsibilities. You know, he's, he's still young. He's still developing. In my case, I was already in my 20s and I had the girls over my head. I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to put this down. And I just opened up Skyrim and kept playing my little game. Um, but yeah, no, I've been in this situation before. I get it. Sometimes it becomes addicting. Sometimes you want to be part of the scene, or maybe sometimes you want to get back into hacking. You know, you have to have a lot of resolve and a lot of, um, you know, consequential thinking before kind of doing something like this. And you know what? It sucks. I hope that this person, you know, is able to turn their life around. They're still young. So I, th I, have, I have faith in them. So how hard is it to hack into Rockstar Games through a fire stick? Uh, well, it all depends, right? So if he has a fire stick, he probably used you know, it to get access to a web browser. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know the exact details. Yeah, sure. I'm just speculating here. 
Yeah, so we're speculating here. So let's say he used the fire stick to hop on. Um, he got into he probably connected like a Bluetooth keyboard, maybe. Um, because I can't imagine like just scrolling through the keyboards and <laughs> fucking that would type be in commands. Yeah. So he probably had a cloud account somewhere with like a, a virtual SSH terminal. Um, I mean you could you could log into cloud.google.com and get a free terminal like right now with a virtual machine. And you could access it from your web browser. So it wouldn't have been difficult for him to access a cloud provider, get access to a virtual SSH terminal, log into a machine that he's had stashed there for quite some time that he's been probably used before, and then just start getting access to systems. It's not that difficult, right? It's not rocket science. Now, if he had access to his tools and logins and other stuff, he either has a really good memory or he had a stash he didn't tell the police about. And that's the reality. I mean, it's, it's more than likely the possibility there. Yeah, uh, they caught him pretty quickly doing it again. So I'm going to guess that they were up on the internet connection. Yeah, they probably they probably had somebody in another, in another room just watching the the, the the traffic flow, right? Well, I'm going to say I'm going to say no, not in the next room because they would have stopped him during if he was doing it. Uh, they they would looked at it after the fact. Let's give the the cops the benefit of the doubt on this one. Sure, sure, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> so they probably looked at it after the fact, or maybe they 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 saw they had a fire stick in the room, and kind of like how you saw that I had a a, a laptop charger in my apartment. Yeah. Where's the laptop, Hector? I don't know. <laughs> Hector, do you have a computer? Nope, no computers here. <laughs> uh, fun times. Back to the origin story. If anybody wants to listen, episode one, you can uh, hear that story, uh, Hacker in the Fed. So. Hector and I are extremely happy to partner with Delete Me. Not only is Delete Me a great company to work with, their product is easy to use and provides a great service for those of us who are serious about our cybersecurity. Delete Me can be found at the domain joindeleteme.com. Again, guys, there's cyber squatters out there that are trying to uh, glom on to Delete Me's great product and trick you guys into going to different domains, but Delete Me is at the domain joindeleteme.com. Hector used Delete Me long before starting the podcast because of Delete Me's proven track record for removing our private information from over 750 data brokers. Hector's praise of Delete Me has convinced me to start using the services too. We talk about personally identifiable information, or PII, being stolen on the show all the time. Every week there's a new breach we discuss with millions of records being exposed. Data brokers are out there collecting your stolen information 24-7. Cyber criminals are using your personally identifiable information for things like opening lines of credit, making purchases on your credit cards, and even stealing your tax refunds. Delete Me is working hard to remove your PII from these data brokers. Delete Me removes private information from hundreds of data brokers. Delete Me has over 100 million successful opt-out removals completed by their privacy advisors. The service is easy to use. Your welcome email will get you started by submitting your information. Then Delete Me's experts will find and remove your personal information. The removal process starts and you'll receive a detailed Delete Me report in seven days. Then Delete Me scans and deletes your information all year long. Delete Me's mission is simple, to remove customers' information from search results. As you all know, and we talk about every week, this is an important step to securing your online world. Through our partnership with Delete Me, Hacker and the Fed listeners get 20% off all consumer plans with the code FED20. That's F E D 20. 
So go to joindeleteme.com slash fed, F-E-D, and use code FED20 for 20% off. This is a great service and it really helps support our show. Again, go to joindeleteme.com slash fed, F-E-D, and use code FED20, F-E-D20 for 20% off all consumer plans. All right, Hector, next story. Trader's dollar in danger. Zero-day vulnerability in WinRAR exploited by cyber criminals to target traders. And so WinRAR is one of the most popular compression tools. And a compression tool is a piece of software that takes a bunch of files and makes it into kind of one big file that, that's easy for to transport and, and opened up at the other end. So WinRAR has over 500 million users word, worldwide. Uh, did you read about this, uh, this attack, this zero-day? Oh, yeah, I loved it. I loved the story. It was a fantastic read. So this group was researching the spread of uh, dark me, the malware that previously found a vulnerability in the processing of a zip file. Um, so they found this zero day in WinRAR since it had been out in the wild since April of 2023. And they've been exploiting the vulnerability that allowed them to spoof file extensions. So what they were able to do is they were to hide malicious scripts within uh, a big dump of file, uh, the zip um, but inside the file contained inside a zip file contains other files like and they called them .jpeg and .txt you know or pictures or or text files. Um, but really, what they were was malicious the malicious malware. So able to weaponize the zip files. So this is a, guys, this is a good read. You should actually go through this um, if you're interested in getting a little more knowledge in cybersecurity. Um, talks about the international, uh, the the access, the analysis of the vulnerability exploitation, a couple different malwares they go through, um, and then they give uh, good analysis on the threat attribution. Oh yeah, no, it's a fantastic read. Like I said before, like they they really go, they kind of break down the the, the basics. I would say the they would kind of break down like. Not only the story, what happens. Uh, and I love that. I love that there's a narrative, okay? And I kind of want to touch on what the narrative is shortly. Um, but, of course, the technology, the vulnerability, um, the capabilities of that vulnerability, and how it was actually used to target these traders. So, for context, there, are, there was a forum um, where it was you know, perused by a bunch of traders, some of which were developing products or developing tools or um, you know, coming up with uh, trading strategies and so these attackers here was, were like, well, what if we compromise these guys by using the zero day? We'll create an archive um, using WinRAR or the WinRAR vulnerability and spoof these files so that it seems like they're clicking on an image, but instead they're actually clicking on um, some sort of binary, a bat file, a script file, anything. It seemed like it was effective. I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how exactly this was discovered. But yeah, I, the fact that you know attackers are looking at, um, you know, specifically targeting different, uh, you know, uh, I would say social networks uh, for the purpose of, of getting you know, those big bucks potentially um, was interesting to me. So I really like the story, Chris, uh, not only because of the content from uh, the group that put this together, but, you know, also kind of like the narrative, the story of how it went down. Guys, the link to the story will be in the description. Go through it. It's a really good read. Um, the next one is even a, a better read. We're going to give you a, a brief overview, but this one is really, really good case study in this one. So HTML smuggling leads to domain-wide ransomware. 
So the threat actors deployed a ransomware after only 12 hours of their initial compromise, uh, and the threat actor delivered a password-protected zip file via HTML uh, smuggling. Hector, can you tell us what the HTML smuggling is? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in this case, you have, um, you know, you, you might have uh, an HTML file that arrives to your email box or inbox as an attachment. Um, you may see this in, with some uh, products and services. I'm trying to think of a good example. Oh, okay. So, like for example, Chase Bank, you can send um, like an invoice or wire transfer to somebody, and Chase, depending on the product that you have with Chase, they may send like an encrypted HTML file to you. Um, well, semi-encrypted. You know, once you download the file, and they, they provide you instructions, right? In the email, you have to download the file and save it to your system. Then you have to click on the file on your file system, so that the browser can open it up in its own session. And then the file would then ask you to authorize or authenticate in some way to prove that you are who you are, right? So there might be like a multi-factor authentication process. But the point is, it is an HTML file that, um, that, that you know, kind of pushes the user to do extra steps. Uh, I've seen it used before. It, it, it seems pretty cool with the services I've seen. Now, in this case, the whole purpose was we're going to send an attachment with an HTML, uh, HTML5 to be specific. And JavaScript to help kind of smuggle encoded malicious uh, encoded data into the attachment. Right now, what's interesting about this is that it's not new. This is a very old technique. It's been happening for quite some time. It has been leveraged by many adversary groups because it is effective. Um, now, here's the thing: if you're able to encode another format, uh, like let's say an ISO file, which is basically an archive. Um, and by the way, Chris, I wanted to make a joke when you were talking about WinRAR a few minutes ago, right? Your name is Tarbell, and uh, one of the more common uh, archive formats is .tar for Tarball, right? I'm sure you've heard that joke before in your life, or, or even the connection. Yes, I've heard it a hundred times, or a thousand <laughs> times, right? especially in grad school. People love, did you know? Yes, I know. <laughs> um, but, but in this case, the attackers would send you a attachment with an HTML. Inside the HTML, they probably had an encoded binary. That bi binary was an archive. And then the archive was an ISO in this case. Um, is an ISO can be opened as an image, kind of like a, an operating system image. Not an image like a JPEG. I hope uh, we could probably go into that some other time. Um, now, once you open that ISO as, a, as an image or archive, Inside may be an additional step. It more than likely is going to be the actual payload, right? The malicious payload, the rat, Trojan, etc. Really cool story. I think that um, what folks are going to really enjoy about this, and I know I, I, I kind of went beyond your question, Chris. I apologize. That's all right. Um, but what folks are really going to enjoy about this story is that it gives you perspective from the attacker's point of view on how to leverage something as simple as an HTML attachment, which usually gets through a lot of anti-spam filters so that's kind of i hope i answered your question chris and there's a little bit of extra there sure no yeah there's a lot of things in in his guys to break down um if you have the article open have google open you know it's gonna talk about an iso file like hector talked about which is an image file or an exact copy of something so isos are typically were used as like an exact copy of a cd or dvd back when we stored data on those um and so this iso image will open up uh just like you're opening a cd on your computer uh, but then this also goes into talking about different types of rats or remote access Trojans. 
really good information on there on the banking Trojans they're talking and deploying. And then they used, have you ever used this to the, the cobalt strike? Of course. Yeah. Cobalt so, strike was dope for quite some time. Yeah. So that's a penetration testing tool um, to kind of help yeah, used for, for pen testing, used for security researchers. Uh, but in this, this, this format's using for malicious. Um, is it still out there? Is it, is you still, people still use it or is it sort of out there? Yeah. I think cobalt strike itself, um, I believe there was a purchase. I think it was sold to a different company or there's some weird oddity that happened there with, with a transfer of ownership of the product at some point a couple of years ago. But no, it still very much exists. It has a very large ecosystem. A lot of developers, especially those in offensive research, offensive security, still are developing templates for it and payloads for it. Um, it, is, it is quite extensible. Um, it has a very simple user interface and it has some sort of visualization. So if you compromise one host, and you move laterally from that host to another host, it'll visualize it for you in some sort of format, like a, like a um, set of icons that connect to each other. So it's a pretty solid tool, quite expensive. There are other tools like it. If you guys want kind of an alternative, um, you might find like a Metasploit with a GUI interface. You can do some stuff very similar to Cobalt Strike. The difference is uh, payload delivery and payload generation and the extensibility might be a little bit different too. Um, but yeah, it's still out there. And in fact, a lot of bad actors use it for active campaigns. Even though is it's it's expensive? Yeah, well, they're they're basically you know they're they're taking advantage of uh, the old school wearers. You know, uh, somebody would buy it, so somebody's buying it, or a researcher gets compromised, and then the license key and and the binary itself is stolen, um, and then someone will you know reverse engineer the binary to um, you know various different ways to either you know, distribute the binary with the stolen key or they'll distribute the binary that's patched so that the license key is not even looked up and the program will just work as is. Um, so, yeah, it, it's funny that a security product is, is uh, um, has its own, you know, uh, licensing issues uh, and, and, and is being shared by Black Hats. But yeah, guys, this is a, it's sort of long, but it's really, really well written. It's put together well. It's got a great case study. It's got attribution, analysis, initial access, execution, uh, persistence, privilege escalation, defense evasion, uh, credential access, discovery, lateral movement, collection, command and control, impact, timeline, indicators, and network detections. Uh, great read. Totally recommended if you guys want to learn more about you know how these things work. Uh, how ransomware moves through a system, how they discover it, um, how they isolate it. It's uh, it's really, really good read, and the link will be in the description. Oh, and there's one, of, there's one point that I really want to uh, put some emphasis on, and, and that is that the, the, like the final ransomware payload executes somewhere like 12 hours after the compromise. I believe you mentioned that before. That's interesting, right? Because now you're – let's look at it from the attacker's point, uh, point of view. If the attacker sends a shady – as HTML attachment to someone, and that someone downloads the attachment, they click on the um, HTML, they open up an ISO, they're doing all these different clicks, and then like an image loads, um, and now they're getting alerts from their you know antivirus or EDR or whatever controls they have or tools they have. Um, they could at that moment start to correlate it. So, oh my God, I just clicked on this thing right now. Maybe there's correlation, but the fact that it runs 12 hours after the initial compromise tells us that the attackers are looking to delay potential detection, hoping that um, if a victim clicks on this at 8 in the morning, uh, 12 hours later, they're probably sleeping. So it's, it's, uh, 
is interesting to think about. It gives you some perspective uh, as to like the mindset of the attacker, but it also buys him time. Um, you know, I think there's a question in here about like initial entries and ransomware and so on. Um, when an actor, bad actor, compromises an environment, um, depending on how they're they're kind of let's say they're part of a ransomware group, and let's say that they're like an, an, an initial hey, access you know broker or an initial access specialist, whatever they're called these days, that person would compromise a system. And then they would sit on the system, probably validate their access, and then leave it alone because they would resell that access to somebody else. Uh, it could be a ransomware group. Um, so really, when you get those random HTML attachments, it may not be a ransomware group initially that's accessing or trying to compromise you. Um, it's probably someone that's looking to compromise you and then sell you off, basically, to a ransomware group. So some, some good points here. Uh, the 12-hour delay uh, could indicate a whole bunch of different things, and I hope that I, that what I just broke down for the audience really uh, gives them some perspective. So, Hector, the next story is cybersecurity hiring gap. Time uh. to rethink who can contribute. So, this is more of a this is from a CSO online. I remember a CSO is a chief security officer. This article is interesting because of the questions we get all the time uh, about you know how can there be entry level jobs. Uh, into cybersecurity that requires 22 years of experience, <laughs> you know, and that's that's a little off, but you know, it's it's the way. So the you know the article says there's no denying the large number of vacant full-time positions to be filled in cybersecurity workspace. It ranges from 3.5 to 4.7 million jobs globally right now, um, and that making entry-level cybersecurity jobs are just that entry-level. So once Cisco goes on, ask about the complexity of the tools being brought to the market and learning curve needed to be a contributing member of the team. His opinion was a high school graduate, maybe with some community college classes and critical thinking skills as having what they need to know to fill an entry-level cybersecurity position and to be operational within days. What's your thoughts on this? That makes sense. It could happen, right? Well, it depends on the tools as well. Take cybersecurity out of it. What's an entry level job into any any career field? Yeah, well, it's it's exactly as it as it says. I mean, it is an entry level job, meaning that more than likely you're coming in, um, you know, as an associate, maybe as an intern. the The goal there is to expand your knowledge base and you know get your skills up while you're working. As you're learning, you're probably part of a team. You're probably being overseen by someone. But it cannot, you cannot, I would say, you cannot expect an entry-level person to do an entry-level job and have them run Cobalt Strike, you know, in three days. That's so not why, realistic. Why is cybersecurity different? Why is this industry so effed up that someone needs to have so much years of experience and, you know, you're going to be an entry-level job? How did that happen? Yeah. How did we get here? I mean, that's a great question. I've had, I have, I've had conversations with, uh, folks that work at big corporations. I've I've had conversations with hiring managers. Um, the reality is, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the honest take, and I'm I'm very cynical about this. Um, a lot of the people that are actually hiring, meaning hiring managers and folks like that, are probably not really technical, so they have no understanding as to what this means when they're putting out an entry level job and putting in five years of experience. That does not make any sense. Um, I mean, given those given those rules, right, or requirements, um, that HR manager would probably not get the job either. Okay, um, it's just not realistic. And so, yes, you could theoretically take a high, high school student and put them through a rigorous training, um, and you know, mentor them and and teach them all the ropes about a specific tool. 
But there's going to be an issue. The issue is that if you're not training them beyond that specific tool, then they're probably going to be missing a lot of core concepts. And core concepts plays a very pivotal role in anyone getting into this industry and being successful at it. So okay? do, you think, do you think they have to come in with those core concepts? Should they come into an entry-level job with those core concepts? Or is the problem with the cybersecurity industry not giving them the proper training to get those core concepts? Well, it goes, it go, in my opinion, it goes deeper than that, right? You and I have talked about this before. We, I, I think we both agree that cybersecurity should be some sort of course, class, anything that probably should be taught at high school somewhere at some point, okay? As an elective or as a mandatory, do you think people that aren't interested in cybersecurity should be forced to do it? Because I don't. I, I think it just takes away no. from the kids that want to go be in the class that want to be there for this. No, I wouldn't say force them to do this, right? I mean, there's, there's a reason why back then when you watch old TV shows, you know, a lot of those shows had schools. And look at Greece, for example. The concept was they're back in the 50s and 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, and they're they're able to go to a, like a, a a trade school and do mechanics as a sixteen year old, rather than studying you know history or American history. Um, you know I, I don't really see that a lot. I know there's I'm sure there's trade schools here. Or there's schools that offer you know electives and so on, um, but that's not really common in public schools. And I've been in quite I've been to quite many public schools here, at least in New York. Um, so should this be something that that could be offered? Absolutely. Do I think it should be mandatory? No. But if someone's interested, right, if, 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 uh, if, if one of our kids is interested in learning cybersecurity and they have the opportunity to learn it in high school, absolutely. I think that would be dope. Um, but really, it, go, it, it goes back to the, the school system and, and you know, what they're willing to offer in terms of curriculum. There was a CSO in this article. The, his quote was this, and, and I think it, it's right in line with you and I how we feel. Entry level should mean just that, an entrance into the field or role. I feel very strongly that your overlooked potential, uh, tremendous talent, if a particular skill set is used as a barrier for entry. I'm looking for people who have an interest in the subject. We can teach the skills to anyone willing to learn. So if someone's interested in the subject matter, uh, they should be able to get into the, the that. I mean, maybe... Maybe you should show some certificates. I mean, we we talk about like the free certificates that Google and Cisco and all that puts out. That shows that you you have a knowledge of the 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 field and you are willing to put in time and you're willing to learn about it. It's not like it's not just on a whim. You're like, oh, you know, I want to become a cybersecurity expert. Let me go get a job in it, and they'll give me all the experience. You know, uh, maybe there is, but let me ask you this. Um, an FBI agent, and I'm a little, you know, I, I was an FBI agent, so I maybe feel different on this. And do you feel that that is a like a prestigious job, a big job, uh, you know, something you know we should hold res in, with respect? Absolutely, I think, I think, I think to get to that point, I'll speak. I, I'll, I'll answer that question with with uh, with some thoughts of my own, right, about law enforcement here, at least in New York City. Well, well let me just let me just put a cap on my my point on that one. I, okay. I agree, it, it is. You don't have to have any law enforcement experience. You don't have to have any investigative experience to become an FBI agent. You, you get picked based on your background. And I mean, in my FBI class, there were bankers. There was a guy who owned a childhood uh, um, a daycare center. Um, there were teachers. There was a doctor. I mean, you have don't have any other knowledge. And, and so cybersecurity has got the balls to say that you have to have years of experience for an entry-level position in cybersecurity. You don't have to have that level in, to become an FBI agent, you know, which I, I, I hold in very high regard. So, sorry, I interrupted you. Please, please finish your, your point. 
No, no, but the, the point aligns because I know that when I was, you know, 18 years old, I took the NYPD test and I was interested in joining the force at some point. Um, you know, all I needed was 60 credits, right? There was no, you know, prior requirement or prerequisite like, hey, you have to take some sort of elective in high school or something that, you know, uh, maybe some sort of like, uh, 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 you know, simple criminal justice course or something, right? It was just, hey, you have 60, 60 college credits. And you can run X amount of miles within a certain time of time, uh, amount of time. You could be a cop, right? And from what it sounds like, what you're saying about the FBI, it seems like some of that is, is probably true there as well. Um, if you're back, well, I think there's more, right? I, I think when you when you guys, um, your background also matters. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it I find it a bit absurd that you know we kind of uh, I don't want to include myself. So these organizations that are hiring or putting up these job posts, saying, "Hey, we need X amount of years experience." For this entry level position or internship is just ridiculous and it's part of the problem. Um, I don't think that, you know, I, I, the cynical side of me for a while thought, well, maybe this is like, you know, these companies putting up these job posts is kind of like a phantom, you know, like uh, maybe there, there's, there's some sort of joke that I'm missing. It's not also cybersecurity, by the way. I've seen tech related jobs, uh, developer related jobs where the job posts like, yes, we need an X amount of experience in this programming language. Well, I remember seeing a really funny tweet, uh, could have been on Reddit, where the guy posted a screenshot of the job posting, and he was like, uh, yeah, this language has only been around four years or five years, and they're asking for like eight years of experience in that programming language. I remember that one. You remember that one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but this, this, this is, these are the kind of issues that we're seeing. So now the question is, is this with the HR? Is this with hiring management? Is this with the companies themselves that they have no idea as to what it is they're looking for when hiring? Um, you know, that CISO you just quoted, that's a great quote. I like to hear that. But I promise you, and this is with me talking with a lot of different organizations, they tell me when I bring up that point, yeah, you know what? Why not just train your own people? Get some get some interns right out of college um, that just got the degree or they're working on the degree. Um, they might be really fantastic for you. And they're like, well, it's going to cost us a lot of money to train them. That's what I'm hearing. So even though this CISO, you know, is willing to train and teach anyone that's willing to learn, right? That's the end of their quote. The reality is that that's they're just they're just one out of a thousand. One out of a thousand being interviewed to be in a magazine. So yeah, who knows how truthful it is? But but it's definitely a problem. You know, I, I mentioned a story a few weeks ago. I had dinner with a local politician. He he had a family friend whose son didn't want to go into college and just went into cybersecurity. Took a few certificates. Um, and got in. Great story there. Uh, Andrew Morris last week, you know, he started off, just get your ass in in any job you can. Once you get in, you're going to work your way up. And now he's the CEO of a cybersecurity company that he started. Um, you know, that's uh, fantastic. Uh, my friend Conan, he's, uh, he's a federal agent. His son, also the same thing. Didn't want to get into going to college, got into computers in high school, um, and then made his way into some certificates. And now he's a red teamer for a major retail organization. Yeah, it's a great story. And, and Conan told me the story the other day. Uh, and, you know, I, I'd love to hear this because I hate, I'm very passionate about the cybersecurity industry um, and this this entry-level position. We, we we keep saying there's, you know, three and a half to 4.7 million open jobs. And then we have a whole bunch of people that want to get in, but the entry to get in, the barrier is too high. Yeah. Well, you know, I tell you, it is it is it's definitely annoying for me, right? Because I've worked at companies where I'm like, well, you know, I'm willing to train. And, you know, not to mention any specific ones, but that was my goal 
and that was my purpose as coming into the business, coming to train and build the team. And as soon as I joined the business, they're putting me on pen test 24-7 and this nonstop engagements to the point where if we brought in someone who was an associate or entry level or whatever it is you want to call them, um, I had zero time to train them. And, you know, it's, it's like, okay, so you need to figure out your priorities. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to fill a role? Are you trying to build a team? Or do you just want somebody to, 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 to essentially, uh, uh, you know, be a robot, be a machine, and just continuously do work until, they, you know, they get burnt out? And there is a lot of burnout in this industry. You know, this is a great conversation to have. I know a lot of people listen to us because, they you know, they want to get into cybersecurity. They want to learn some topics here and there. That's great. The reality is, is that I feel for you guys because you guys are having to run through a minefield um, every time you're trying to apply for a job. And that's not really fair, considering the number of jobs that are open right now. Go to LinkedIn. Prove me wrong. Go to LinkedIn to type in InfoSec job, pen testing job, security analyst, SOC analyst. Type in any of those terms. You're going to see a ton of jobs. Now, look at the requirements. It doesn't make any fucking sense. No, not at all. But moving on to our, from our bitch session over into our shout outs <laughs> of the week, Hector. You sent me over from an X account. Uh, I know you love to still call it Twitter, but Elon's going to stop buying shirts from us and stop uh, sending in uh, private messages to us if you don't, don't start calling it X. Over on X, at Cyber Warship. Uh, what do you put out there this week? Yeah, no, I found it fantastic. There was um, a really interesting example of uh, a researcher submitting a security report, and uh, they submitted it to Thales, the company that makes, like, you know, they're in uh, um, aerospace, and they're a multinational company out of France. Um, they, they supply some security research, they're probably a disclosure, and the company wrote back with an acknowledgement. Um, usually when we see a vulnerability acknowledgement, it's usually like a one-liner inside of a CVE, or some sort of security advisory, right? Um, in this case, no. They wrote him a, a very nice letter acknowledging, you know, the person's time um, with a nice letterhead from Thales and a signature at the bottom. So I, I thought that was very cool. And just wanted to shout out Thales for doing that. Yeah, big shout out to them for doing it. It looked very, very nice. Uh, you know, and at Cyber Warship, you know, says he's definitely going to keep working with these guys um, and help them wherever he can um, because of this interaction. So it's fantastic. So, I mean... Uh, yeah, maybe a little uh, token of their appreciation, you know, a couple bucks his way would, would help too. <laughs> yeah. Nice, a nice little check doesn't go far. You know what I mean? It yeah. doesn't go long, rather. Yeah, yeah. It's so, not too bad. Shout out number two um, for this week. Uh, Hector, one of your friends uh, got an email, says uh, keeping your Synology router up to date. Uh, it was an email uh, about a vulnerability in, in a router that they had. Yeah, no, this was fantastic. I got the email. It was kind of like a tip, like, hey, look what these guys are doing. Um, they are a customer of Synology, and, and uh, they received an email say, stating that they've received multiple reports regarding uh, third-party actors trying to exploit vulnerabilities in their products. Um, it, it is an advisory. Um, it is essentially a forewarning saying, hey, uh, you may be running an old router. It's time to upgrade uh, or update your firmware. Here's how you do it. Here's a link. Here's release notes, and here's step-by-steps um, that you should probably follow. Uh, I thought that was fantastic. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think it's great. I think the whole email is very professional. You know, you can double check that it's really coming from them and that the updates are available. Providing just the links, you know, if you're not a sophisticated user to, you know, it's just, it says link and click on it. Um, that, you know, that's a security warning. You know, you should understand that. But, you know, definitely a big shout out to Synology for emailing their customers and letting them know um, what they need to fix and why they need to fix it. 
Yeah, and I would give a warning to the audience right now, even though this email seems pretty cool and a big shout out to Synology for that. Uh, you know, a, a social engineer could easily manipulate or create a template out of something like this, right? So if you have a vendor sending you an email saying, hey, we may be vulnerable or you may be vulnerable to something, you should probably update your um, your firmware on your router, et cetera, whatever it is. Instead of clicking on the links in the email, you should probably go to your vendor website and look for the security advisory. Yes, it is is an extra step. Yeah, it's not that convenient. But, you know, we've seen stuff like this being used to uh, uh, target folks as well. But regardless, uh, regardless of that warning, uh, big shout out to them for kind of doing this. Yeah. And uh, final shout out to your friend for sending it over. And I know your friend's a listener. Um, We intentionally didn't mention your name in a relationship uh, friend because uh, we we, security wise, we don't want to talk about what type of router you use and someone to find out who you are. So but but shout out to you for listening to the show. I know you listen. So, Hector, let's get on to our listener questions. Uh, our listeners love to write us in and ask us questions of uh, what we're going to do and what we can talk about. Um, you can you can reach us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. I think last week or two weeks ago, we put out there exactly how to get uh, emails into us. You just call, say Chris is right about something and it'll be included in the show. Um, I think we got three or four emails uh, titled Chris was right. So they're definitely in here. <laughs> so for those that might, this might be their first show or they listen to some shows and not all shows, we've had a dialogue, Hector, with an anonymous hacker back and forth who's actively involved in cybercrime as we speak. He's ri- He writes us from hacked email accounts. Um, and you've given him some advice about going, turning to the white hat side and cybersecurity. Um, and we, we got an email back from him. It's kind of lengthy, but I think it's, uh, I think it's well I think it's it's good for the audience to hear it and kind of following the story. Would you like to read it? Yeah, no, I would love to read it and, and kind of address some of his points. I mean, he does bring up some good points here. Let's start off with the beginning, right? So in response to your response to my previous question, I listened and you mentioned honing skills in, uh, honing in skills that are most relevant to becoming a cybersecurity professional. I believe that skills, that the skills one needs for cybercrime aren't very applicable to becoming a white hat. For example... Uh, for ransomware, it's as easy as scanning the open internet for anything vulnerable using a bulletproof holster, exploiting CVEs, and then moving through networks, which is also very easy as most organizations have external and internal vulnerabilities. Um, weak passwords that can also crack, uh, etc. I've hacked some organizations with $100 million revenue who should have had better security than they did. And yeah, there's some good points here. Um, and I'd be very honest with you. This, the only thing that I would, I would um, kind of focus on here is that, um, you know, where he says or where they state, I believe that the skills one needs for cybercrime aren't very applicable. And I want to kind of touch on that as I finish this, okay? So as we move forward here, of course, there are more sophisticated attacks, but what I think the industry needs to understand with the constant increase in ransomware attacks is that you don't need to be elites or elites to compromise big organizations. Oftentimes, it's as simple as a a spray and pray for new and old CVEs and also weak default guestable credentials and vulnerable public-facing applications. Other times, you can buy your way into networks via the Genesis market, Intel X, Dhash, and other infoceded lock markets, buying up admin, VPN, RDP, employee credits, and cookies. Nothing I'm saying is new or unknown, but yet companies still fail in these regards. Absolutely. 1,000%. He's on point with that. And in fact, a lot of the stories that we cover of specific breaches kind of correlate with exactly what he's saying here. I Sorry, I think he ties in directly into our conversation that we had earlier in the day about how all these cybersecurity stories week after week are the same thing. An active hacker uh, agrees with us. There you go. So he continues. 
being involved in ransomware can be exhausting. The deployment of ransomware is the last thing that you do. Lots of work to put in before getting to that stage, and maybe the blue team finds you and kicks you out, which means loss of profits and more pressure from ransomware managers. Cybercrime is a business, and it's treated as such. Gone are the days of hacking and thinking that you're clever and special, but now it's all about profit. Of course, I and and Hector agree. Don't attack critical services or healthcare, only private industries. You know, big shout out to him. Like I, you know, listen, I I can't agree. Obviously, I cannot agree now with with you know hacking in general, for, especially for when, when it comes to cybercrime and ransomware. But I'm glad that he agrees that critical services or healthcare should be left alone. Um, and we can go into that topic more later on. Here's where he ties in that point that I wanted to address. I think for being a cybersecurity professional, I will need to develop and refine penetration testing skills specific to black box engagements. With professional pen tests, you don't know where the vulnerabilities are. You're tasked to look and help the client remediate. With ransomware, you're only attacking that organization because you already identified a vulnerability or got a fish in or are holding existing credentials that are valid. And then, of course, he says, of course, the email was silly. It was meant to be. And uh, the email is referring to is that he emailed us from like a hacked account. Uh, he said the server was not part of any of the factories main network. It could have been a nice ransom as they would have been at my mercy. Oh, well, on to the next one. So I want to address the, the point that he brings up because it's a very good point here. I want the audience to really pay attention, especially if you are trying to get into cybersecurity. This is from a black hat. He's speaking to you, right? I'm not speaking to you. This is him. The idea that uh, as you're working as a professional, you know, you're not just necessarily praying and spraying one specific attack vector or focusing on one specific attack vector. When you're engaging a client's environment, whether it's internal or external, you're trying to get as much coverage as possible, okay? Um, And going back to the author of this email here, you know, I just want to say that, yes, you know, maybe hyper-focusing on that, you know, one attack methodology may not be that valuable for you as a professional, but consider the fact that you haven't spent your entire career focusing on one attack path. You've explored various attack paths and attack vectors. Now, you combine all that together, and that knowledge that you gained will make you a superb security professional. But and here's one thing I tell people all the time. Being an offensive researcher or pen tester, in this case, this is very specific to this email here and this scenario, pen testing is just part of what the customer is hoping to, to get from you, right? What they're really hoping that you would help them do is identify gaps, Okay. And in order for you to identify gaps, obviously, you would have to have a, a, a full coverage and a, and a, a very thorough methodology on what to target, how to target, where to look at, what to look for. Okay. Uh, but once you get beyond that, let's say you do identify an attack path. And I'll give you guys all a scenario, right? A real-world scenario. You log into an internal network. They have DACP v6 running, right, which, which basically allows for broadcast requests of network devices to request an IPv6 IP address. Okay, since that is done in broadcast, that means that an attacker could sit on a network, listen to a request, and submit a response. Okay, so now that's a that's a possible vector. That could be considered a high-severity issue. Now, imagine a scenario where you have a bunch of Windows machines on the internal network that have SMB signing disabled, which basically means that an attacker could relay a broadcast connect a request, like I've mentioned previously, and relay that onto a system that does not 
um, authenticate incoming requests, and now you can do a relay attack. It's very old. There's nothing new about it, but it's very effective. Okay, great. Here's where it becomes important for the client. Can you communicate that attack path to the client? Can you help them understand that you utilized two vectors to uh, engage or compromise their systems? Now, once you get to that point and once you're able to communicate that to the clients, now the next step is, well, here's how you remediate that, right? So you, can't, you cannot only just be an offensive researcher and a black hat or a former black hat like myself. You also have to have an understanding on defense and how to defend and remediate such an attack path. Now, once you take all of that into play, what you have is a pretty solid start into cybersecurity. So for the author here, you may not think that, you know, you, 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 know, you may be uh, uh, ready for, to become a cybersecurity professional, but I think you are, all right? You just need to fine-tune and tweak your methodology, and then you need to get, you know, I see your writing here. Your email is superb. You know how to communicate. So I think that you're in a much better place, and a lot of folks are just starting out. So... I hope that helps, uh, Chris. Um, I think I covered the, the the content of the email pretty well there. You did, you did. He did have a couple questions though, so let's cover those. Uh, yeah, but but yeah, that, that's great. I mean, guys, remember these are words from an active black hat hacker, and Hector's giving you advice uh, based on his words from his experience. I mean, he was a black hat for many many years. He's been past that for about a decade now. Uh, if not longer. Um, so you kind of see things a little differently once you have a decade of experience uh, under your belt. So I, I agree with Hector. This guy has a, you know, a, a good start, um, and I, I think he doesn't give himself enough credit for the skill set he has to get into cybersecurity. On to the questions. Chris, as a Fed, if I attacked Asia, Russia, Middle East, Latin America, and other countries, continents the U USA does not care about, will I be fine as long as I don't attack USA allies? This is my thought process. Can you specify if this is true or not? Sure, crime is crime, but whether U.S. cares enough to invest resources or not into the investigation is the question. So you are right. If you are in one country and you're attacking non-U.S. country, um, and you're not sitting in the U.S., it's not a U.S. crime. Um, it's tough for, for the United States to go to, get, go to do anything about it. The problem you're going to have is that some sort of infrastructure, some sort of wire, some sort of line is going to go across the United States. And they're going to care. They're not going to care right up to the point when they start caring. And your traffic gets caught up into some server that they were taking down for another reason. Somebody else is using that as a hot point. Somebody else is using it for something else that you're using that infrastructure for. And then the United States is going to investigate the hell out of that case. They're going to put together a package and they're going to send it to your country. Your country won't even have to do any sort of investigation. Here's the bad guy. This is what he did. This is his IP address. This is when he did it. This is, your, this is the guy. Go arrest him if you want him. So your defense of I'm only attacking non-U.S. countries, it's good until it's no longer any good and you won't even see it coming. And some of these other countries are doing the same thing. The Netherlands, the Germans, um, the, the Brits, the Australians, they're all increasing their cybercrime output and what they can do. And you're going to cross one of the wrong countries at the wrong time. Um, I, I just don't think it's a, it's a defense uh, you know, for, for what you're going to do. You're going to get caught. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and I think it was a good answer. And I think the reality here is that there, there might be some differences, there might be some nuances. For example, so what if he attacked, what if this attacker here uh, compromised um, an oil refinery that belongs to an ally, 
that would affect U.S. economy. I mean, I'm sure that would that would draw up some sort of interest, right? I mean, who knows? Maybe the federal agencies in the U.S. Maybe they just pair up and they help you know whatever country is affected by that because it does affect U.S. commerce. You never know. You never know what case is going to get involved in. You know, you never know what somebody else is looking at, and then the feds come in and help. Like I said. You're using infrastructure that some other guy, unbeknownst to you, is using to commit crime, and you get caught up on a wire. That's how it happens. He did have a specific question for you, Hector. He says, Hector, how can I, if I were to go into an interview, and when they say, how did you gain these skills, what do I say? Oh, yes, cybercrime? Of course not. But how else do I show competency without outing myself? Making clean money outside of crime is more desirable, less stress, less paranoia of being raided, uh, sustainable income, and no threats to my freedom when traveling abroad, specifically to America. So what do you tell him? How do, how do, you, how do you handle that, Hector? I guess your stuff is more public, but if, he, if you weren't public, how would you handle that, that question in an interview? Well, my friend, I'll tell you, and I'll give you a very honest answer from what I've learned in discussing or having these conversations with people that confide in me. You know, now that I worked with them or did a pen test for them, I've had I've had folks from clients, from client environments where they'll tell me, yeah, you know, heck, back in the days, I was a black cat. I was an IRC with you or I, hey, I might have run into your nickname on FNet one day or, hey, I, you know, this is how I got started. I, I started breaking into systems to learn very similar to your story. Trust me, my friend, I've heard this already. I've heard this a lot. There's a lot of people in our industry that started off just like you and I. And the reality is that when you go through an interview and they ask you, well, well they're not gonna they're not gonna just ask you how did you gain these skills. They're gonna ask you probably questions like, so what got you into cybersecurity? Right? And you know, I listen, at the end of the day, you are a researcher. You got into cybersecurity as a researcher, and that led you down to doing CTFs and hack the boxes and all of that stuff. You know, the reality is is that. That's what a lot of hackers are. And that's how we all started. I started by reading random, e what they call e-zines back in the days or magazines, you know, uh, the documents, text files that basically said, or they were titled things like, um, you know, uh, what is an API? Or, hey, this is how you hack into uh, Unix over Telnet. Or, hey, these are common CGI, uh, CGI vulnerabilities of, by means of Perl, Right. Um, how we hacked into Apache.org. It's a great text file. You should read that, by the way, guys. That came out of 98, I think, 98, 89. And it gives you a really good breakdown as to how these attackers broke into Apache.org and FreeBSD.org. It was the same group of guys. The point is that as a researcher, that's pretty much what your answer is going to be. I was curious. I was interested. I started learning. I started by looking at vulnerabilities. I started by testing uh, proof of concepts. And that's that. You know, I'm not telling you to lie to them, but the reality is that's what you were and that's what you are. Now, obviously, then it's one thing, the biggest advice I'm going to give you, once you decide to go the right route, okay, you need to drop all of that other stuff. You need to disassociate yourself with the scene and anyone, anybody that you know that's still in that scene because they're going to drag you back in. Start fresh. Create a, you know, if you're social media like Twitter or X, create a new Twitter account. Create, create a new X account. You know, start following the news and cybersecurity news, InfoSec Twitter. You don't have to follow, you know, these guys that are into that scene. And, you know, there's, there's a lot that you can do to kind of disassociate yourself with that lifestyle. Because you're right. I had that stress. I had the paranoia of being raided. When, you know, Chris knocked on my door, I, I had a gut feeling that something was going to happen. You know, call that intuition or call that complete randomness. 
But the point is, that's not the life I wanted to live anymore. And I hope that you reach that point as well. He finishes up his email, Hector, with love listening. I know emailing a Fed could be dangerous. Just look the other way on this one. Not worthy, not worth time and resources. This will be my last email as every email sent is a little more risk to myself. I hope it's not your last email. I hope some of Hector's words really ring true. You know, just like we had a listener that now, you know, joined the NSA. I'd love to hear from you that you said you're, you you get out of this game, that you've listened to some of this and move forward. So I can tell you for a fact that we're not looking at any of the email headers. We're not looking at any of that stuff. I mean, we're not, we're not going to do any sort of investigation. You know, like you said, it's not worth our time and resources. Hector and I have a lot of other things going on. So um, just love the communication. Oh, yeah. Good luck, my friend. Yeah. Reach out. Please reach out um, and, and let us know some of your thoughts. And, and, and don't let this be your last email. But, you know, not because we're tracking you, but really because we do care um, and, and we love to hear the feedback. So, Hector, the next question is uh, from Brian. He says, Dear Chris and Hector, I freaking love your show and look forward to it every Thursday. Thanks for making your knowledge and expertise available. Also, love the banter. Pound anti Phineas. Uh, yes. yes. Yes, pound anti Phineas. I agree. <laughs> you guys have provided a lot of information about how to enter the cybersecurity field, but my question is, for you is regarding hardware. Ooh. If I were to build an ideal machine for the field, what specs should I have? Is a powerful processor with more cores important? How much RAM is needed? Uh, is a designated GPU better than a graphics interface with a CPU? Is a laptop better than a desktop? Can I get a, use a Raspberry Pi? Um, so we're not going to go to all those details about how much RAM you have and, and, and should need. Um, Hector, what's your ideal machine? Yeah, no, look, a Raspberry Pi to learn Linux is the move. It's super cheap. It's, it's you know, uh, you could reset it at any time. You could reinstall the system. You could you could just swap, a, a you know, your SD card and boom, you have Raspberry Pi or Raspberry Debian or, you know, you can have all sorts of different distributions you can play with. Um, I think some Unix is on and like some of the BSDs, but I'm not 100 percent sure on that. Um, here's where here's here's like I, here's the meat of the question. Okay, it all depends on what exactly it is that you're trying to do. If you're trying to do uh, processor intensive calculations, or um, I'll give you an example. If you're trying to brute force a password, um, having low CPU is not going to help you. So having a low CPU with a ton of RAM is not going to help you at all. Because you're going to need the CPU for brute forcing a password, John the Ripper, or something, Hashcat. Um, now, again, back to that same point. If you're trying to crack a password, you probably want a designated or uh, you know a, a, a segmented GPU for that, right? A GPU that's connected to your device. You could use probably an integrated um, GPU or APU, depending on your system. Um, but do you really need that? These days, no. You could go to vast.ai and pay like pennies on a dollar to crack passwords with someone else's network uh, or, or or cluster of GPUs for nothing. Okay, yeah. you rented GPUs is the way to go these days. Not, not even two weeks ago, I had to crack, you know, eleven thousand hashes, and I just rented a CPU, a GPU uh, farm, and it cost me about six bucks, and it took me about twenty minutes to go through a massive uh, password list. Uh, yeah, you don't need it for that. And that was for uh, work, everybody. That was for a, a, a paid <laughs> red team engagement. That, that was definitely for work. Now, if you're if you want to do some gaming, then yeah, you should definitely get a GPU. Is a GPU required for cybersecurity? No. You could you could you know I would say the focus should be to get a decent um, CPU with a decent amount of cores and RAM. RAM is really where it's at. My laptop itself has 64 gigabytes of RAM. I love it. The CPU is not the best, but with enough RAM, I could do exactly what it is I need. And you know what it is I need? 
since I'm always doing research, I'm always reading, I'm always looking at PDFs, I'm always looking at a whole bunch of different things. I have, you know, 20 terminals open. Um, the more RAM, the better. And that works for me. So just figure out what it is you're trying to do and build a system based off of that. Now, as for laptop versus desktop, since I'm always working, like, like nonstop, and I'm traveling, I have to take my laptop to work on the road and afar, and I can't do that with a desktop. So there you go. I hope that answers your question. You mentioned Raspberry Pis in a good way of learning Linux and all that. How do you feel about VMs? I love VMs where I can just take a snapshot, fuck it up, and then you know, redeploy the snapshot back where, where it is. I, I find my, the best way for me to learn and, and work on things to, to, to get in there and fuck it up. Yeah, no, VMs are fantastic. I mean, if you have, if you have the money for VMware or you have, uh, if you just want to get VirtualBox, that works. Or yeah, you want to do... VirtualBox is free and a good start. I mean, get a, get a machine with a good RAM, uh, like Hector said, and, and, and run some VMs. Really, you know, get in there. Yeah, just deploy some VMs in your system. You're good to go. You can learn Linux. You can learn BSDs. I, I started off with Unix. My first system, honestly, honestly, was Slackware Linux back in the mid-90s. Um, but then I immediately jumped into BSD. FreeBSD, NetBSD. Uh, because I was poor and I would pick up like computers from the streets, like, uh, uh, you know, people, people would throw computers out because they were, they were getting too slow. I would throw a full NetBSD installation on, that, on, on whatever crappy machine I found with X, X server running, which, which means a, basically a GUI interface. Um, and the entire installation was like 400 megabytes. So, I mean, there's a lot you could do, a lot you could practice with. Yes, virtual, virtual machines is the way to go. But if you have a Raspberry laying, a Raspberry Pi laying around, by all means, you can play with that as well. Danishes and Raspberry Pies. That's all I'm thinking Ooh. about now. Now you're hungry, huh? Exactly. Brian finishes <laughs> up with, you guys have totally inspired me to work towards a career in cybersecurity. Thanks, Brian. My pre-pandemic career was in music, and I've been trying to shift gears since COVID hit, but have been lacking direction. But your podcast has lit a spark, and now I'm hooked. Uh, thanks again. Kind regards. Thanks so much, uh, Brian. Those, those are kind words. A listener Ben reached out and he says, Dear Hacker in the Fed, FYI, reinforcing Hector's year of the insider threat prediction. I almost didn't include this because sometimes Hector gets a big head when people <laughs> people say uh, he, he was right. So Ben over sent over two different stories that there's a company that I have to leave for professional reasons as just a company is now suing two former employees for leaking lots of company and customer data. And then also the New York Knicks, the basketball team, is suing a former employee's a former employee and the Raptors for disclosing proprietary information. So uh, shout out to Ben for finding two more stories for Hector's uh, year of the insider 2023. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I may have, uh, uh, you know, kind of overlooked the fact that ransomware is going to blow up again this year. Yeah, It's bigger. <laughs> it's, it's bigger apparently, <laughs> but yeah, no insider threat is a very real threat. And thank you, Ben. Big shout out to you for bringing up these stories. Yes. As a New Yorker and a, uh, Lifelong Knicks fan. Hopefully, they have a good year this year. Um, I did read about this story with um, you know the the organization suing a former employee in Raptors. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it happens. Okay, I think the tough part for organizations like Knicks is to prove um, that this happened. Right? Uh, I'm sure they have some 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 details and evidence to prove that this indeed happened. But yeah, you know, you're going to see a lot more of this. And think about it like this: you know, uh, a lot of companies are not like the Knicks. A lot of companies may just kind of move on with their lives. Um, they might just accept the risk. A lot of, it already depends on um, an organization's risk appetite, right? In this case, the Knicks is a billion dollar organization. They have to sue, especially if proprietary information is ending up in the hands of a competitor. Yeah, 
I get it. Hector, one of our best listeners, Rachel, who I've shared emails back and forth with. She's helped uh, point out a few things that, that helped the show. So thank you for that, Rachel. Uh, she wrote, uh, Dear Hector and Chris, and she said, I don't actually intend to submit this as a live question, but it's always a challenge myself to look, at, look it up for myself. Um, but I, I included it, Rachel, because you're such a good good listener. Uh, is the DARPA contest also being tested whether the developed AI solution detect older open source vulnerabilities we already know about, like Polkit? Yeah, that's a great question, Rachel. And theoretically, it should, right? I mean, even the... So as you read the PDF, part of the challenge is that they're going to provide um, several open source projects or even code snippets to the challengers. And the whole idea is to uh, to see which challengers and which products or their tools is able to detect the most vulnerabilities at what speed. And there's, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other bits of information they've, they've, uh, they will be collecting to kind of determine um, the effectiveness of the solution um, and next steps. So theoretically, they might just pull out an old version of Apache Access too and see if someone could find, you know, X amount of vulnerabilities and even find some zero days based off of the AI solutions, okay? So yes, so what's your questions? I think that, yes, that should more than likely be a thing. I mean, otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, I mean, I think in order to train the AI to look for solutions, they're going to have to cover all the old solutions. So um, it's going to it's gonna be in there in the, in, the, in the machine learning. So so next question. Well, I don't think it's a question. It's kind of a critique. And uh, we'll, we'll give the critiques too. Um, so Samir from Europe says, Hi, Hector and Chris. Uh, your podcast is very inspiring. Uh, it gave me the inspiration to redirect my career towards cybersecurity. Well, thank you, Samir. Um, the interactions are great. Don't listen to those who ask to go straight to the, to the point. Yes, more banter. Uh, I think this week we had some good banter. Uh, so Samir goes on to say, I just have one remark, which is never a good thing when we, you host a podcast because we, <laughs> um, it would be great if you could you get the same mic or check with the producer the audio resolution. The difference in quality between your two mics is a bit less immersive. So Samir, hopefully this week is a little bit better. Hector and I do have the same exact mics. Um, last week I was on travel. Uh, Hector and I both have day jobs. Um, so sometimes we have to travel. Um, I had my go kit and it didn't work out so well. So Hector and I did our normal, um, banter and three or four stories. And then we did our separate interview with Andrew Morris. Um, fortunately for on the Andrew Morris, uh, interview, Hector did most of the talking. Um, and, uh, we cut out all the other stories and they were probably the best stories, weren't they Hector? Yeah, they were fantastic. The, the best stories we've ever done on the podcast. But um, <laughs> Pound Anti Phineas told us to uh, cut it all out because it was no good. So we just did the the thing. So we, we hear you. We want to make the show sound the best it can. We've done as much as we can as far as getting good mics, um, getting everything possible, getting a good, great producer to to make us sound even better. But again, any feedback like this where you say that what we should do to make the show better, glad to have them sent in. Um, one thing that Hector and I are going to do, um, we're coming up on our one-year anniversary Oct in October. October is also Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Um, we're going to do some giveaways. Uh, we're going to come up with a way to interact with you guys a little bit more. We'll have more information about that as we get closer. Um, but we want to give away some merch. We want to you know, grow the show. Um, and so we're going to come up with something in October to try to uh, do both those things. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be exciting. Plus, it's my birthday month. So now we have three cool things to celebrate in October. It is. It is. So the 13th, yeah. right? That's right. Yeah. So 
Very exciting stuff. So, Samir, um, thank you for having the courage to write into us. Um, uh, for other people who don't put it so as nicely as Samir, um, I'm going to tell you to pound sand and don't send your email. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So. So Ian writes in, hi, Hector and Chris, big fan of the podcast. I love listening every week and learning from both of you. I'm new to cybersecurity world. After 20 years in the healthcare industry, I needed a change. I've started with a company that manages passive DNS, and I have been learning a lot over the past three months, but always eager to learn more, especially from people with such great knowledge and experience. I'm wondering if you have ever have ever used passive DNS data in the past and how it has been useful and how you chose where to get the data from. Lastly, if you have any resources or on where I can learn more, please let me know. Thanks again for your content. I really enjoy how both of you present it. Uh, you're a great team. Well, thank you so much, Ian. Hector, have you used passive DNS data in the past? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, especially now, well, as a bad actor, yes. Especially in scenarios where, um, again, when I was a bad guy, not to glorify that stuff, but I didn't want to trigger an organization's DNS servers or IDS's intrusion detection systems, um, maybe queries or brute forcing queries or brute forcing DNS records would have triggered something. Um, and this really applies to organizations that ran their own DNS servers back in the days. Uh, not so much these days. A lot of folks go to Cloudflare or they use their, their registrar to handle records. Um, but there's still a few companies these days that still manage their DNS servers. Um, and if you are brute forcing their DNS, they will see that. Okay, um, it will be an indicator. Someone somewhere will see that. Now, as a professional, now as a red teamer, absolutely. Hector, can I can I just ask you, what are you brute forcing their DNS for? Yeah, so very similar to like how you, how folks will brute force so old school brute force password cracking. You know, you supply your brute force tool if you write one yourself with a, a, a URL, a username, a username that you want to crack. Let's say admin, and then you provide the tool a list of passwords. Things like password one two three four and summer twenty twenty three and so on, and then the tool is going to continuously try to log in using every credential in that list. That's brute forcing. Um, so when you're brute forcing DNS records, what you're doing is kind of the same concept. You're you're using a DNS tool, a numeration tool, with some sort of word list, and you're going to brute force or, or send queries to the DNS servers. Um, they're managing the domain in question, the target domain. And it's going to send a record like, hey, I'm, I need the A record for test.domain.com. And the DNS server is going to say, well, test.domain.com does not exist. Okay, cool. I need a DNS record uh, for uh, forum.domain.com. And the DNS server will then respond with, okay, I have that. Here's the IP address to forum.domain.com. So when you're brute forcing DNS, um, you are going to make a lot of noise because you're sending a ton of queries and uh, it's very obvious to whoever's watching and listening. Now, in reality, do you think that someone's sitting there at like Cloudflare, for example, and monitoring each individual DNS record uh, query that comes in? The answer is no. They probably do have some sort of IDS system or detection system in general. Um, but if you're doing like a red team engagement where you're emulating an adversary, right? So, um, you know, the idea there is that you would use uh, passive data from other data wells and sources. Um, they probably have cached host names and DNS records for the target that you're trying to get access to uh, or, or trying to enumerate. Since that data is already archived by another source, then at that point it is passive, meaning you're not making active connections to any DNS server. Um, it's extremely useful in the scenario that I laid out for you 
And here's the, the really cool part. A lot of these data sources and data wells, they also act as historical data points or databases. So you may find a DNS record that didn't exist, you know, that doesn't exist today, but it existed two years ago. Now, why is that interesting? Well, it's interesting because now you can monitor for, DN for that DNS record to see if it ever comes back online. Is there some sort of automation in place where that DNS record pops up, you know, once a week or something? Um, so, yeah, very important. Passive DNS data can be useful. Um, it is mostly for information gathering and reconnaissance, which is usually, you know, one or two, I would say the, one of the first stages of any attacker's methodology um, when it comes to an engagement. Daniel writes in, I recently started listening to your podcast and have been loving it. I've got 10 episodes left till I'm caught up and predict that I'll be done in the next couple of days. Uh, I have a bachelor's in computer science, the program focused mostly on the theoretical side of computer science. Uh, wanting to get into cybersecurity, I looked around for a bit and decided to do a cybersecurity program. At the end of this program, I'll have earned uh, a plethora of certificates, including A+, Network+, Security+, Project+, Pentest+. I have worked on the Hacker One and the Over the Wire CTFs and plan on looking into Hack in the Box. I've been keeping an eye on pen testing and in general cybersecurity job postings and a lot, if not all, expect applicants to have a few years of experience already. Uh, would it be realistic to start applying to pen testing positions after completing my program or are these jobs uh, I seek out first to get a foothold in the industry? Uh, thanks in advance for your advice. Uh, love your work and can't wait to listen to more episodes. Well, Daniel, I think we hit this one home earlier in the episode today. Great job uh, getting a CS degree and moving forward and all the certificates. But yeah, get your foot in the door. You know, push back on them requiring years and years of experience. That's all bullshit. Um, and, and tell them, you know, Hacker and the Fed told you this. If there's three and a half to 4.7 million jobs, then uh, experience shouldn't be needed for an entry-level job. You know, follow Andrew Morris's advice, you know, just get any job to get in, in there. Work that job, work as hard and do as well as you can. Um, and the next job will come very quickly, I promise. The next level up. 100%. I agree. You know, if you are currently studying and you are on that path, it is not too late to start networking. Networking is huge. That's the best advice you've ever given this show, Hector. I, I never understood early in my career how important networking is. I had an assistant director of the FBI reach out to me today. I don't know this guy, but that's fine. Um, you know, networking is huge. No, it, it is it is huge. It's very important, especially as you're getting into the industry. And that doesn't mean that once you get your job, you're going to stop. No, you're going to continue, right? Because you're kind of building your brand as you go forward. And so you want to be able to have these conversations with folks, participate in local events. If you see a, if there's a local CTF at your, at your local university, why not go down? You know, if it's, if it's a Saturday morning, there's not much going on, take a trip. Meet some folks. More than likely, you're going to find recruiters there. And now, all of a sudden, you have your name and someone's thoughts, right? Now, let's go beyond that. I started my, my professional career working in nonprofit organizations. Every city in this country, in the United States, and I'm sure all around the world, you have nonprofit organizations that need people. Now, just because it says nonprofit in the name doesn't mean they cannot pay you. In some cases, sure, absolutely. Uh, but in many cases, they can. And they could, they could definitely pick you up as an intern. And they would love to have your resource, you as a resource, to help them with their security, right? They do exist. 
if you're part of a small country, Daniel, let's say you're a small, you know, part of a small country in Africa, for example, or in the Caribbean, you know, some of these countries are now developing their computer emergency response teams or certs. Those are usually government-related jobs or organizations, but some of them are nonprofits. Some of them are uh, non-government organizations. You could just send them an email, introduce yourself, say, hey, I'm interested. I live about, you know, 20 minutes away from your office. I would love to partake and participate. I'm willing to give up time. I'm willing to dedicate time. Trust me, Daniel, you're going to go places, but you have to start now. Don't wait until you're done with your degree because you're going to lose precious time. Excellent advice, Hector. If you guys have questions for us, it's at questions at hackmanfed.com. We love your questions. We love to hear the feedback. We love hearing how much you love the show and we've changed your cybersecurity outlook and changed uh, your career paths. The great guys, that's really... It makes it worth doing the show. So really appreciate that. You want your, your Hacker in the Fed merchandise, hoodies, T-shirts, custom orders, please go to HackerInTheFed.com. Um, you can get anything you want there. We do international shipping. We do custom jobs. Um, whatever you're looking for, again, HackerInTheFed.com. New episode every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your episodes. And tell your friends. Tell them about the show. Put it out there on social media. Let's really grow the show. Um, let's get it big enough that, you know, and once we hit the year mark, we're not questioning whether we're going to continue or not. You know, let's, let's, let's get it out there and, and really blow it up. Hector, another great episode. A lot of great advice for the listeners. I really appreciate you uh, sharing your stories. Yeah, no, I appreciate it as well. And I want to thank the listeners for really contacting us and, and giving us some great feedback and questions. And my friend is always a pleasure. I'm looking forward to next week. Cheers. Cheers, friend.